Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I talked to Glenn Holmes, a senior product manager at Workday. Workday offers enterprise-level software solutions for financial management, human resources, and planning. Glenn has written about how product managers perceive easy wins as more valuable. And maybe that's because you can get that quick impact, right? We're often inclined to take that quick win, to build that feature that only takes a few days. But that got me to thinking. We naturally want all of our products to be perfect, and most product managers are pretty empathetic so are we saying yes too often? Are we not saying no enough? In particular, with those quick wins. When people come to us with their small requests, we truly need to evaluate how small these requests could be. It could be two or three days, maybe even half a day. But that long-term load, that debt around that feature, could take a lot more time. Does the right answer to determining value come from setting a framework for defining value? Well, that's enough for me. Let's see what Glenn has to say about determining value. If you want to share your story or your thoughts with me, you can reach me at eboduk at pendo.io or eboduk on Twitter. So welcome lovers of product. Today I have Glenn Holmes from Workday with me. Glenn, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Sure, Eric. And, and first, thank you for inviting me on. It's an honor. But clearly uh, considering some of your other guests. So um, my name is Glenn Holmes. I'm a senior product manager at Workday. And so I'm Workday pretty well known, so I won't go in too much of, uh, about them. But um, I'm involved in, so we build HCM and financial products in the cloud. I'm involved in the integrations area. So more of a technical tool, but it is very customer facing. We have a number of different types of customers that I have to serve. Previously, I've worked in a myriad of industries from sales methodology software, CRM, and insurance underwriting, and started really around financials. So kind of different areas of product managed in. And been product managing since officially, I suppose, since around 2009 and 10. Previous to that, I was probably like a lot of product managers, I think. I was product managing and didn't realize I was product managing. wasn't called a product manager, but that's what we did. But I suppose going into that, I was originally a developer. And like every bad software developer, I went into kind of systems analysis and our business analysis. So started working a little bit more with customers at my own company. We were contracting, building out software for financial companies. And from that, I kind of moved from the technical side over to the kind of more business customer facing side. And... Again, like most product managers, probably learned it on the job and kind of built up my kind of expertise around that. And I suppose here I am today doing a job that I love. And as well as that, on the side, I moonlight as a lecturer. So I lecture in emerging technologies and in business analysis and product management at the National College of Ireland. It's a university here in Dublin. So um, that's kind of what I do now. And yeah. That's me. Yeah, it seems like quite a few product managers have started by doing the work, but not necessarily having the title. So yes. you, we hear that quite a bit. Kind yeah, of, uh, and it's like what I say to my students. 
you, you don't go to college to study product management, right? You don't go to, I think there, there is actually a postgraduate course in Dublin, in the Dublin Institute of Technology, which I've also guest lectured on in product management. And I've very rarely found any other courses around the world that are similar. So you get a master's in product management. But most of us, yeah, we learn as we go along. And I, I think that to an extent, Eric, I think that's probably a good thing because, you know, making mistakes and having those scars are probably what make you a good product manager as long as you don't keep on making those mistakes. But, um, you know, so there was no real structure. I mean, pragmatic marketing was the first thing that probably I came across, and that's certainly the first thing I studied, and that helped me greatly. But I still, and to this day, still make a lot of mistakes. But, you know, you, you do learn fast, you know, in that, in that scenario. So part of your early learning was studying how people approach problems, right? How they make decisions. How has that work made you a better product leader? Yeah, sure. And, and really... Probably from my academic background, I've studied a lot of different areas, Eric. And I think that um, studying decision-making is a real, I think it's a really important area for product managers to understand. And not just about how our, because we focus a lot on how our customers make decisions, even how our markets make decisions. But how do we as product managers make decisions? Because we're humans, right? And we're prone to that kind of cognitive bias or that irrationality and you know, there's a great book, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners have read it, um, but if not, I would say go and get it. And it's uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. I'm sure you're aware of it. Um, fantastic book. Not probably the easiest of reads. It's quite an academic book, but it really helps to frame our thinking and how irrational we are around our thinking. Um, the famous example used is the, I mean, in the book, there's, there's lots of examples of, of decision-making, but it's the Campbell Soup. I don't know if you know that story, Eric, yourself, where, you know, our, they ran, there was an advertising agency ran a experiment where they had cans of Campbell Soup and they had a discount of 10% on them, just in a, in a store. And in a similar store, in a different location, they had tins of Campbell Soup, 10% off, and they limited the amount anyone could buy to 10 cans per person. The average amount of cans bought when there was no limit was five. The average amount of cans bought when there was a limit was seven. So that kind of lends itself to why. Why, is this, why was there a difference? And it's because when we think of certain things as exclusive, we make different decisions. When we think of things as scarce, we make different decisions. When we think we've invested the sunk cost fallacy into certain products or processes, we tend to behave differently and make decisions differently. And we listen a lot to respond and not to understand. And I think that's a big problem that I have. I, talk, I do a lot of tests with my students around active listening approaches. And my students will be business analysts and product managers. And I ask them, and I do simple things like I read out a paragraph and I ask them to explain or paraphrase the paragraph back to me about certain topics. And they essentially get it really wrong. And it's only a small paragraph of 152 words and they can't process that because their biases, their context of how they understand certain situations makes them, even makes it difficult for them to paraphrase simple, simple paragraphs. And that's not making, that's not because they're idiots or they're students or they're young or they're old. It's just because they're people. I was at, there's a great festival on in Ireland, which is again, probably one of the only ones in the world. It's an economics and comedy festival. Now, there's two things you wouldn't think that would go together in the world, but it's um, based in Kilkenny here. It's called Kilkenomics. And I go every year and it, a lot of it, it discusses around decision-making 
and around the behavioral economics and the kind of how even governments make decisions, how public policy is formed. And I was there last year and there's a, there's a guy who goes every year, Martin Lostel. He was, he's a former finance minister in Argentina. He was a, an ambassador to the US recently from Argentina. And he's a, he talked about uh, actually a friend of his who's a neurologist. And they use functional magnetic resonance imaging, so the fMRI, um, on people's brains. And they focused on when people make decisions and then people actually explain their decisions. So you would think that when you have to make a decision, that you analyze it. So our product managers, right? We're the analytical minds. We're the people who make rational decisions about our product strategy. But yet, under this, uh, under these circumstances where neurologists were looking at brain patterns, brain activity, and making decisions, they could see that the brain would light up when you make a decision. So certain parts of the brain, the hippocampus and the cerebral cortex, they would light up when a decision was being made. But when you ask somebody to explain the decision, the brain lights up like a Christmas tree. And it should be the opposite, right? So if you're trying to make a decision, your brain should be really active and making, you know, that, that should be like a Christmas tree when you're thinking about all the consequences of decisions, everything you have to take into account. And then that decision should be really easy to explain. Your brain shouldn't have to work hard. But in most human beings, it's the opposite. So these are things that, you know, from different areas, from studying how people approach problems, you kind of get to understand, I think in products, how your customers make decisions, how your engineering team will make decisions, how you as a product manager can try alleviate those biases or negate those biases or those, you know, or, or take the context out of a situation in order to make the correct decisions for your product. So it's a long probably answer to your question there, but it's, it, I think it's really important to understand how decision making happens, um, both from a, not just from a process point of view, but from a physiological and psychological point of view to make proper product decisions. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting. Let's dig into something you mentioned early there too, and you're, you're talking about Campbell's Soup, right? So let's dig into that and talk about how product managers learn a little. Often, I think I see in, in software product companies, PMs focusing on learning from other software companies. But mm-hmm. as you cited with Campbell's Soup, you know, they can definitely learn from other domains you know, talk yeah. to me about how they can learn, what they can learn, and how they can apply those learnings to their products. Yeah, and I think, again, this is really important. And, and we probably all come across people, and maybe not product managers per se, just could be friends, could be, you know, our colleagues in different industries. Um, or, you know, you look at it and you kind of, people who are kind of come across as polymaths, maybe. They're interesting people. Like They tend to take different learnings from different industries, different understandings, different fields of study and apply them to everyday situations in life. And I think product managers can learn a lot from that because I think understanding, we focus an awful lot. We're a bit myopic sometimes. We focus a lot on technology, which we should. Everyone should understand about the technologies in the markets we're, we're, we're learning. And we might even understand our industry, right? So our domain, under, in work that we would understand HR or finance and other industries who see CRM or banking. But actually understanding the wider context, other industries, how even innovations are diffused in other industries, I think is really important. I'm a huge advocate for learning and understanding history and philosophy. I think understanding historical references, military strategy, it's a big thing. If you look at you know, the decision-making military and the situations they were under in strategic military decision-making, really important how products, you can really apply that to product management, you can apply it to almost any industry. And I think even understanding philosophy, and I think this is becoming really important um, more and more 
on the last number of years, the most popular part of the module that I lecture in is ethics, ethics in, in product management, ethics in IT, because, you know, we understand, you know, that we shouldn't do things, right? So we look at the Cambridge Analytica scandals, we look at Volkswagen emission scandals, and everybody, it's easy to understand, say, you know, that was, they were bad decisions, they shouldn't have been made. So if we look at, like, as I say, the, the ethical implications that companies are, are faced with, that product managers are faced with, I think it's really important that we understand the kind of context of decisions that are made. I say about issues such as that have come up like Cambridge Analytica, like the Volkswagen emission scandals. I think if we understand the context and the history and the kind of understanding of philosophy and ethics, and it might seem very kind of, you know, very far apart from it, the world of technology we live in, but understanding how people embrace technology, how people don't embrace the technology, how people make decisions, how people are coerced or manipulated or really have a kind of point of view that may be very different to yours, but basically at least we can try and understand that point of view. I think it can help us in product management. It can help us generally in life, but it will help us in product management. You know, there, there, there are many understandings. There's, there's lots of kind of parallels. We can take stories from history that we can take and apply them to any market today. Annie, how, in, how innovations are diffused into markets, how ideas are understood and not understood. You know, I think it's really, really interesting areas to study. And I, like, it's something that I advocate to a lot of people, my colleagues, my, my students, is really to go out and read books about, you know, not about the technology industry, read history books, read, you know, biographies of people who aren't maybe technologists. And I think it gives you a great perspective on different industries and how they apply really across the board. Well, let's, let's dig into some examples there. You know, you talk about how PMs can learn from history and philosophy. Yeah. You know, let's talk about how those learning can teach you about markets being formed and consumer buying behavior and how you can apply those lessons then to be a better product manager. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things, uh, there's an interesting, and I'd like to probably start an example with a story. There's, there's one of the kind of more, poignant stories, I suppose, that I've come across and something I think is really applicable to a lot of product management scenarios is there's a story of a guy called William Lee. Now, I've never started the story about William Lee and asked people, do you know who William Lee is? I've never had one person go, yes, I know who William Lee is. And yet William Lee is a very important part in the Industrial Revolution. He played a very important part, I should say. So William Lee was born in late 1500s, so uh, late 16th century. And he's the son of a hosier. Now, hosiers, oh, they make uh, hosiery. So tights were ubiquitous in the late 16th century. So men, women wore tights. And tights were difficult to make. So you think of made and made set of tights. Any mistake that was made, they were thrown away and you had to start again. Quality was sometimes compromised, sometimes low, unless you were quite wealthy, you know, good quality, but tights that were made generally for, you know, because they took a long time to make, so they were made quite poorly, uh, generally. So William Lee kind of spotted this uh, issue, um, kind of was a bit of an innovative, curious kind of person. And he developed a machine that, well, now this is around, remember, this is the time in the birth of Industrial Revolution in Britain. And William developed a machine. And the machine was the stocking cloth machine that allowed you to spin, so it's like a spinning jenny, fabric together to make tights and you were able to make tights you know 20 pairs a day i think was his first uh, the first iteration of the machine great quality which it used to take people you know a week to make 
two or three pairs. So this was a massive, massive improvement in the industry. So William had a great idea, this fantastic idea, developed this prototype, developed this machine. And back then, still around now, was the guild. So if you ever heard of the guild system, the city and guild. So the guilds were kind of an organization that, let's say, they were involved in the gatekeepers of any industry. So they looked after a specific industry. So there was a, even now, this day in Britain and in Ireland, so there's a guild of electricians. Back then, it was a guild of coopers, a guild of blacksmiths, a guild of sword makers, whatever. Um, and there was a guild of hosiers. So in order to get your, your idea or your technology or your innovation used amongst hosiers, you had to get approved by the guilds. So you got a stamp from the city and guilds. So William went to the city and guilds and showed his machine, expecting this is going to change the market. And the queen actually was um, the head of the guild system. And William was told that Her Majesty thinks that your machine is fantastic, but can you imagine the disruption if 18,000 hosiers are suddenly out of business overnight? So William was told his machine would not be adopted into the market and they wouldn't allow it to be adopted. So William was distraught, his whole life's work, every penny he'd spent really on this machine, he thought it was going to revolutionise the industry and he was told it won't work. So William was quite suicidal, really in a bad place and he went off to France, he had relatives in France and in France he took his machine and he started working in France in his machine and building out, or sorry, making tights and the French aristocracy, the French even people, not just the aristocracy, started buying his tights. And travel was becoming pretty common between Britain and France in this around this time, start of the 17th century. So a lot of British were coming over, meeting their aristocratic cousins, and they were saying, where did you get these wonderful tights? Now, I know it's hard to imagine, particularly two men talking about where did you get your wonderful tights. But this, this conversation was happening, and they were going back to London, and people were saying, and they were buying William's tights. They were going back to London, and next of all, people in London were saying, William, where did you get these wonderful tights? He said, oh, I got them off an English guy in France. So lo and behold, there's a lot of pressure being put on, but why don't we have these, these quality tights in, in London? Why, why do we have to go to, to France to get them? The guilds were getting under pressure. And of course, the aristocracy had a lot of pressure, as, as, as always, put a lot of pressure on the guilds. And eventually, long story short, was that the press, pressure so much and people were going to France to buy these that they actually started adopting William's machine. And William's machine came to the facto method of not just tights production, of cloth production for about 200 years. Now, unfortunately, William, the point of things, William never really lived to see this. He died long after moving to France and uh, died quite young. But his machine was incredibly successful. So what's that mean for product managers? Really, what does that mean? Well, the thing is that we've all got great ideas and we've all got these wonderful things that we believe that are going to be, you know, our customers are going to love. They're going to be amazing. One, you've got to understand the context of the market you're going into, right? So you might be trying to disrupt a very traditional market like William was. Things like, you know, we've seen people in the banking um, industry, design medical, anything with, particularly with barriers to, to entry, any market barriers to entry. And even no matter how wonderful or brilliant your product or your idea is, it may not be adopted by the market. There may be a lot of difficulties with getting it to market. But the likewise, the side of it is that protectionism doesn't work. So if there's a protectionism in the markets, so you're going to a market where you might find it difficult to disrupt, that there's lots of protections in place, that market forces will generally break down those disruptions. So in William's case, the guilds were stopping him from 
getting in and getting a foothold in that market. But market pressure outside. So it is that find you're in in the market, right? William didn't by by chance and by sadness he found French aristocrats. But if you think of going out to your your early adopters, your innovators, finding them, if William had found them earlier, he would have saved himself an awful lot of pain and ultimately an early grave. But if you don't disrupt, plus William disrupted that market. So the, the, ne- the last lesson I'd probably say from that is that as product managers, when we build something great, we, we tend to like to sit back and admire what we've built. And one thing I always say to every product manager I know is that the minute your product goes to market or leaves the building, Try to kill it. Try to build a better version of that product. Try to disrupt your own product because if you don't disrupt it, right? So if you don't go to a market like William was making tights and was successful in his market, but he tried to almost kill that market, right, with his machine because if he didn't do it, someone else will. And then think about that as a product manager. If you don't disrupt your product, other product managers are out there existing in rival companies. They're there to disrupt your product. So you're better off disrupting your product before somebody else does. So there's like that's 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 just one example. There are absolutely there are many many examples we can take from history. I write about these a lot. I talk about them a lot that I think are really really applicable. And you know this is like you know, what we say 400 years, 500 400 years ago, 500 years, 430 years ago. Not a lot has changed around the culture of how we adopt. Now we we like to think that technology now is. I mean technology it can become viral much quicker, right? I think you know it took. 50 years for 50 million, I think, uh, people to adopt television, to use, have a TV in their home. I think it took something like 40 or 50 years to get to 50 million people with televisions. It took something like 34 hours to get 50 million angry birds users. So that's, that's what we're living with. But the culture of adoption, the culture of protectionism, the culture of change, it's still, we haven't moved on much. We haven't evolved much as human beings in that in that we can get the market quicker, but actually that whole how technologies diffuse into markets or how they're embraced, it still kind of rings true. There's still an element of difficulty. There's still an element of you need to disrupt and you need to be have a strategy for disruption. It won't just happen. You won't just you know release something into the world and everybody will adopt it. You need to have that kind of um, focus on disruption or you'll end up probably like poor William in an early grave. So let's move our conversation a little bit to data, right? You know, part of a product manager's role is to understand how his product's being used, um, capture this data. You know, talk to me about a product manager's relationship with data. What should it be like? Should they be data-driven, data-informed, data-based? Yeah, I I think, you know, if I'm honest, I think data is an incredibly, incredibly important tool in any product manager's arsenal. And... I think, you know, I, I really think we can't build products on anecdotes, right? We can't build products on, but we, we need to build it on evidence. And evidence comes in many forms. And data is one part of that, but it is an incredibly part, important part of it. So, you know, I'd be loath to try, you know, to have any feature or any specific product, particularly vision created without having some data to back that up, right? But the problem I think we have, and it goes back to maybe the behavioral economics side of things um, and certainly around people's psychology is understanding data. I think uh, humans, I would say product managers, but I see this misunderstanding data is so, so prevalent, you know, because we look for patterns and there's lots of really good, strong tools out there that will help us and visualize data really well. But honestly, understanding patterns 
it's something we're really, really poor about. One of the most famous ones I know, um, you're thinking for American folks, I would say this in Europe and, and not that many people know the Monty Hall story. So you might have heard the Monty Hall experiment where Voss Savant, the, the, the lady, the famous um, intellectual who proved that basically, you know, the, the Monty Hall game show where if you choose the other option, door, it actually ends up, it's a higher probability of winning the prize. And the issue with that, like, so this was a, a an intellectual who proved out a game show issue, right? A game show problem via mathematics. And she had, I think, a thousand PhD, people with mathematical PhDs wrote and said she was wrong. She was incorrect, that there was no difference in the probability. And it's really around the area that probability is so misunderstood. There are really high-end academics from all sorts of prestigious universities that still don't understand probability. And if you look, you know, you, you know, I've, I've read a couple of books on probability and, you know, I'd certainly be no expert, but the amount of people, have, it, it's called it the most misunderstood part of mathematics, okay? And I think that if people who have PhDs in mathematics are misunderstanding probability, what chance have product managers got, right? Unless we've got PhDs. So I think understanding the probability of things, the likelihood, the statistical significance of things is something that we're not very good at as product managers. So looking at, you know, having data to inform your decision, to understand it, I think is essential. But I think we need to get better at how we understand data. Um, A famous one, again, going back to an example, is in World War II, there was a famous case where the British intelligence at the time so the, the, you know take it from the cream of british institutions uh, academic institutions so cambridge oxford came and worked for british intelligence and what they were doing they were looking at they, they were obsessed obviously with german spies as in anyone in most wars so the biggest weapon that the enemy had was a spy and they were trying to weed out spies so one of the things they looked at was they were looking at they were at the time some statisticians were mapping bomb droppings and um, so the Luftwaffe during the Blitz mapping where bombs are being dropped in London and what they found over a while over a series of weeks so statistically significant data was that certain parts of London were being bombed heavy and certain parts of London were not being bombed at all they were being avoided so was the hypothesis so effectively what the intelligence took from this was that if you're hiding your most prized asset right and you want to hide them in plain sight because they're spies. You don't want to kill them by dropping a bomb on them. So they postulated that the Luftwaffe were intentionally avoiding specific parts of London. So that must be where German spies live. So if you lived in parts of London, Notting Hill was one. And if you lived around Notting Hill in you know 1947 and you ever had any inclination that you were in any way Germanic, if you ever had a Bratwurst, if you ever you know, drank a Pilsner, you would be under suspicion. And a lot of people were interned without evidence. They were tortured. They were, you know, put in prison and war camps. We don't probably hear about that sort of thing that too much. But this happened during the war. And after the war happened, it was a, a Polish mathematician, William Fuller, I think his name was, if I'm correct, looked at this data and these simulations and how they plotted these bomb droppings. I found out that they were just nothing more than statistical probability, that the Luftwaffe really weren't that good. They were being, you know, shot at by 
big anti-aircraft missiles. So they were getting into London and dropping their bombs and getting out there as quick as possible. They weren't actually that accurate in where they were dropping. It just happened to be a, a probability that they fell or missed certain areas. So a lot of people went to, you know, to prison. People were under suspicion. Neighbours fought with neighbours. Basically down to people who were supposedly experts in understanding this area of stat- statistics based on data making a big mistake. So, you know, that's quite an extreme mistake. We hope that we never do that as a product manager. But I think doing that, I think being data informed is fantastic. But it should probably start a conversation or start a study into what you want to know. It should form the hypothesis. And then you can validate it with the data. But if you base everything on just the data, I think you can get yourself into problem, into difficulties. And I, I know this and I made a mistake not long ago, probably about two, three years ago. I remember putting a survey out to my, to my, I was starting on a new product. I'd inherited a product. So I put a survey out to users to ask them, can you tell me what's good about it? A number of questions on the survey, okay? But one of the questions was, can you tell me what you really like about the product? And then I said, can you tell me what you really dislike about the product? And of course, when it came in, of the first 10 responses I got back, and it was anonymous, six of them were pointing to a specific area of the product. So straight away, I'm like, right, there must be a problem with that. And I started looking at it. I, started, I followed up with other people. We did some testing. We did all the proper product management stuff. Um, did some, found a problem with it. You know, looked at the usability of it, looked at how it acted, looked at the kind of feedback it gave me. Said, right, this isn't really good. And get my, had my engineering team start writing out the requirements, you know, wireframing them, the whole proper, proper product management thing. And then realized that when I went back to the survey, there was only actually two more references to that area. In the, and I had 112 responses in the end. So I leapt to a kind of hypothesis straight away without having the full set of data. And I'm supposed to know this stuff, right? I, suppose, I, I talk about these issues that happened in World War II and how the Monty Hall experiment and how probability is misunderstood and how statistics are misunderstood. And yet my kind of eagerness to solve a problem meant that the minute I saw a, a kind of a pattern of form, I jumped at it. And actually, if I took the whole data set and looked at the pattern, it was actually probably an insignificant amount of people really that pointed to this area. And they were probably all, when I look at it, probably often the same company. Six people probably at the same time filled out the survey when they got it. So, you know, we all have these problems. So we should be data-driven, maybe data-informed, but I'd just be wary of relying entirely on data. You know, you really need to, it should form the hypothesis and it should maybe validate some of your thinking. But you, you need a myriad of approaches, I think. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, we can use data to test hypothesis. We can use data to help formulate hypothesis that we then look to test. There's lots of ways we can use it, but we shouldn't be you know, purely focused on the raw data without any context you know, around it. 100%. And it never hurts to keep talking to customers, right? Yeah, I, you know, I, I can't remember where I heard it. I had a great one that... You know, you, you can't form a good relationship with data, you know, um, along the lines of you can, you know, you can talk to customers, you can form relationships, you can kind of get really understanding the context. Data doesn't really give you that kind of, particularly the context. Awesome. You know, I, I spoke with Ryan Singer from Bracecamp on a recent podcast, and he speaks a lot about leading with strategy and design. And now, especially with Agile, you can see product teams can turn easily into feature factories, right? And really yeah. think about how they often can prioritize output over outcomes. Talk to me a little bit about how you personally avoid this. 
that's actually that's quite uh, probably serendipitous. I was only I only saw a tweet. I think it was yesterday by a guy, and I can't remember who, who it was, but he, he was talking about Ryan, this specific point by Ryan Singer. And he said he brought it to his organization. I, I don't know where he works. And he said, Look at this, like, you know, about this feature factory. And it ended up that the engineering manager went, This is brilliant. So, how do we create a feature factory then? <laughs> so, <laughs> that's funny. So, so, so <laughs> that's probably where I, But I think if we bring it back, I suppose, like, like anything, it's, we have to be aware of the cult of Agile too. And I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of Lean and I'm a huge advocate of, of Agile. But I suppose it's like, it's at that kind of inflection point in, in the Agile industry where there's a lot of people coming in and, and claiming to be Agile experts and Agile coaches and etc. who are really uh, exploiting the back of it. And they're being paid for, like, you know, they're getting Agile consultants in companies and they're being paid by companies. And the objective of the company is that how can we, build more stuff, sell more stuff, right? And so they're compromised about giving what their customers are asking and being pure to the kind of process of Agile, you know? Isn't that a process we want to change? I mean, isn't that something where we want to think about, you know, it's not building more stuff, but helping customers do a better job solving problems or, you know, or improving performance by X percent as opposed to just adding X features that are supposed to prove important. 100%, 100%. And and something that I, I find is that, you know, how much time do we spend taking stuff out of our products? You know, it's very, very rarely, right? You see a sprint or if you're in Kanban, you know, or whatever form of Agile you're using, or whatever form of any methodology you're using, how often do we spend saying, let's take stuff out, let's get rid of these things that are causing issues or, are, you know, nonsense that are, you know, bloated in our products. And we don't do that an awful lot. And I think, um, I think one of the reasons around where we become feature factories is, I think, and this is, you know, from over the years, particularly like in, in Workday, I have to say our agile process is, is it's really, really mature. It's really strong. There's a huge culture of it. You've got really good guys and girls that are implementing it excellently. But and one of the things that they, particularly in my organization, we talk about is the artifacts that are used. Um, I think in a lot of organizations, they just see sprints and scrum, right? Or even they you might think they're mature and go to Kanban or XP. But what you don't see, like, you know, I ask about, um, you know, where's your vision document? Okay, where's your product vision document? And then, uh, well, yeah, we, we have a sprint goal. I go, no, no, like, actually, where are you saying, what are, the me- what are the measurements of success of this product or this feature? And I think if you bring it back to that, it's very, it, it becomes very obvious that building lots of features or lots of stuff is not a measurement. Of, it's not a proper measurement of success, right? It's a measurement of success. You tie it back to the goal you want to achieve you know, what problem you want to solve. And even from an organization, like if we want to increase revenue by X, if we want to increase engagement, if we want our NPS score to improve, there are really tangible things that I think if we say, well, let's build a hundred features to do that. You know, it's easy to say that that's nonsense. Okay. So I think by having one, how we avoid it, the question is that having strong artifacts at the beginning. So emphasize the measurement of that. So your vision document, what you're building, what you're not building, who's the audience, what you're not, particularly what you're not going to build, right? I think that's really important. What this product will not do, what this feature will not do is really, really important. And I think to do that, to stop that, I suppose I go back to data and I go back to anecdotes, but I think sometimes that organizations that tend to be feature factories are probably, again, a little bit maybe myopic and they don't 
and this is a pure, just probably sweeping generalization, generalization, which is really wrong. But if you're a feature factory, you're probably not talking to customers that much. You're probably not engaging with the market that much. You're building it on hunches. You're building it on, you know, somebody's opinion, somebody's kind of idea, and you're just throwing it out there because you're not validating really what's valuable or not. I don't think if you're throwing out, you know, a million features uh, constantly. And one of the things, actually, there's, there's an interesting, and I wrote about this, I think last year, I was at a talk on, it was by the IE, the International Association of Public Participation, so the IAP2, and what they do, they look at how engaged citizens are in government policy, in engaging with, so how governments engage with citizens in order to pursue public policy, and particularly prevalent in the states, because you know, you've got the federal government and then your um, overall government, the Congress, etc., so one of the things, they have this model, this participation spectrum that they use, and it's about um, where you innovate or, or you collaborate or involve. There's, there's five levels of the spectrum. And based on where you are in the spectrum is how much you engage with the public in order to deliver policy. And I think it's a really good spectrum for product management because where your product management practice sits on, a, say, a similar practice where you either involve the customer, you lead the customer, you collaborate with the customer. It depends on the maturity. And I think based on that, uh, you can almost plot product factory organizations on that spectrum. And I think those that lead the customer a little bit more or certainly don't engage enough end up being feature factory. So I think if you were to look at your product and honestly talk, speak with your senior management or speak with your overall organization and look at, let's be honest, let's see where we sit on this spectrum. And is, you know, and the problems we want to solve, does it align? Because maybe, you know, if you're using Agile and you're a, maybe a service house or a consultancy company, you want to be a feature factory. You want to just because it's about what you produce. I'm not saying that's right, but that might be how you get your margins. If you're a pure product management company, you want to avoid that, right? We all know that. I think it's, and it's pretty awesome. We sit around talking about these problems every single year we go to our various conferences, our various seminars, and people talk about this problem. And then the next year, people talk about the problem. The next year, people talk about the problem. It's like we want to be this product company that you know just solves market problems, that understands our customer, that delivers response. But yet, we too often we see this. So it's really about understanding the culture, the the where you sit in that spectrum, and looking at your vision documents and how you measure success, and seeing do you actually stand up to that success at the end of a release or however you do sprints or Kanbans, maybe your continuous delivery, et cetera. But, you know, does your product really, is it, are you hitting down success factors? Yeah. And I, I think you raised a good point and you mentioned something I think is important early on too, in that, which is this concept of goals, right? If you're setting goals for why you're building features, maybe it's to improve performance and then you can measure back did this have effect? Yeah. Did it actually improve performance? But if you don't have a goal you're tying things to, then you, you might want to rethink why you're building that. A hundred percent. I think it's always important that um, you have some sort of success, some measurement of success, and that be tangible and intangible. Like performance is it's kind of easy because you can just measure. You know, you take a benchmark, and then there are other ones that may be less easy. And then I think there's a there's, and, and I see with success factors, and maybe it's a culture of organisations that you know if you write down success measurements, you're kind of committed to them as a product manager. And then, you know, and then something doesn't happen. You don't reach the revenue target. How will that be perceived? So you've got to, there's got to be a culture and acceptance that these are goals that 
you know, maybe we that we may not hit them all, but if we can get close to them, that's important. But I think as well, defining those goals. So, you know, particularly in the organization, in Workday, my organization, we have our overall organization goals. And then we'll have our business unit goals, you know, within that. And I think that's really important because what you want to do, everything, everything we develop, everything that is on the table for my backlog, we have to say, how does this move the needle on those goals? I would even argue you can dig down deeper into goals, right, too. Like, you know, you might have a goal of we want to help people create landing pages faster. So you look at that funnel, you see how long from step one to eight people actually take to create a landing page in your software. And you can say, oh, if we add these features here, we think this will help them get them done faster. And then you can go back and say our goal is to cut it the time it takes them to do this by 20%. And then post feature, you can say, how did we map against that, right? You can dig all the way down. 100%. 100%. Like, I mean, if you can even go back to, the, to getting down deep is your user story, your, your SODAT part of a user story should be aligning to a goal, right? Should be aligning to, you know, so, so, so that I can create landing pages groups or so that I can go about other tasks that I need to do without having to worry about my eight-step landing page creation task so you know everything should tie back and i think that so th- and this is what we do i, I really mean this we, we sit like you've got to look at your epics look at your your stories and see how do they tie back how do they help achieve that goal and i think that's really how we can look at our outcomes over just building stuff for the sake of building stuff you know really you've got it because if you don't if your goal is just otherwise you, you, your goal your product is just do whatever our customer or whatever somebody has asked us to do, okay? Because you're just building stuff, building stuff because you've got some request in somewhere and you haven't really tied it back to an overall goal. I think it's really important to have those in place, those measurements of success that can allow you to to kind of have focus on what you want to deliver. Yeah, absolutely. So talk to me about how we assess the value of adding a feature, right? Is there, yeah. and beyond what we just talked about with goals, is there other things you tell PMs to do? Yeah, and I suppose, like, I mean, again, it's, it does start with, does it tie into the organization strategy? Does it tie into our product strategy? Does it, what problem? So, you know, if we have a, a vision for our release, we'll say, these are the problems, the customer problems that we're going to solve. This is what we're focusing on. So how does it tie in, does it? So then you start with that. But then, like, simply, you know, I'm an Occam's razor type of guy. Like, you know, it is the simple solutions are generally best so so like you've got to just question how does it add value how does it add value to our users and if someone can't tell you that pretty quickly you can figure out that it's probably not you know going to be overly valuable but also like it can be valuable so you can say well how, what problems you solve how does this add value to our customers and then i'm a major advocate of cano the cano approach so i'd ask like what of our customers how, how will this help our customers do their job how will this satisfy our customers needs and then counter to that is if customers don't have this feature, what's the impact? Because you've got to look at the opportunity cost of developing anything. And I think that's, again, going into your feature factory. So, you know, for everything you do, it's kind of like you've got to look and go, well, if we're doing this, what are we not doing? Okay, What value are we not giving to our customers? And I like to use the balanced portfolio approach. So if we're adding a feature. If you're familiar with the balanced portfolio, I don't know where your listeners are, it's, um, you know, where you categorize the specific features of your release into, you know, you've got your threshold features, your white elephants, which are aggressive features, your exciters, your delighters, and your linear. Um, an example 
just in game for people who don't know the approach, an example might be a simple example is if you think about building a car, you've got a steering wheel. It's a pretty basic feature. You can't have a car without a steering wheel. You know, not just driverless cars in the future, etc. No, but generally, so that's a kind of you've got to have a steering wheel. That's a basic. But maybe things like reverse parking camera. So if you say to your customers, how would you feel if you had a reverse camera? Right, every customer's going to go, oh. Be, be amazing. That'd be a fantastic feature. I can see when I reverse so I don't you know, knock the neighbor's dog down or it's really safe with kids playing behind me. I won't reverse into a car, into a wall. Fantastic, great feature. So everybody's going to say you want it. But then if you ask them, well, what if you didn't have it? Would you not buy a car? And the answer is probably going to be, well, it wouldn't stop me from not buying the car, but it'd be really nice to have it. I'd really like it, but you know, if it came down to the crunch, yeah, I'd probably buy a car without it. I could do without it, right? So therefore, that's categorized what's called an exciter, right? So it's something that the customers will be attracted to your product for, but not something they essentially leave. And linear products are generally your miles to the gallon, right? So if you said to a customer, oh, I've got a car and you get like, you know, three miles to the gallon, they're going to go, I would never buy that car, you know? And you go, okay, well, what if you get a thousand miles to the gallon? They're going to go, oh my God, that would be the most amazing car i'd ever have and of course i'd, I'd, I'd be in that so that's a linear feature the more of it the better okay so that's simple overview of the balance approach and what's really good by doing that if you use cano so cano helps you to plot those type of features i think if you can plot those in the grid you can have a balanced approach so when you're talking about adding value right i mean you might think of a, of a steering wheel as really valuable right so you're not going to spend that much time. You must pay. But it's got to be there. But you might say, in every release, what we'll do to add some value is that we'll pick some exciters. So we'll do our basic features. And we won't do every single exciting feature. So we won't do, you know, we'll do a reverse camera maybe this time. But we won't do nice big, you know, expect, like run flat tires or whatever in a car. Or, you know, leather seats. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll do a reverse camera first. And then in our next iteration, we'll do, we'll add an exciters. And we'll do, uh, very rarely you get linear features, but they're the ones you should do. But I think if you balance your release like that, it helps you to really, it adds, it, it assesses the value of the feature, allows you to plot the value of the feature, and allows you to prioritize what goes into each product. So you're getting a valuable product at the end, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. I think that I, think that I see it a lot. Like, I do wonder sometimes about, how we kind of assess features as as product managers you know like if you go and ask you know do you have a process in place where you value you assess of each feature that you do i think realistically uh, that doesn't happen in a lot of organizations unfortunately um, that i've seen over the time so i'd say like wh- why does it why does a feature get added and they say well it's an important customer wants it Right, or we've heard. I like that. We've heard a, co- a lot of customers want it. And I say again, go back to your data. Well, what's the data? What do you mean you've heard? You've heard from one. You've heard from ten. You've heard from everyone. Where did you hear this? Who did you hear it from? And they might go, "We think it's a good idea." You know, it sounds like a good idea, or it's easy to do. It's all about the low hanging fruit. In a way, none of those are essentially bad. If an important customer wants it, it doesn't mean it's a bad feature. Right? It means that it could be a really valuable feature that lots of other customers will take uh, present from. But how we assess that tends to be very subjective. So putting in place a framework that aligns with the goals, that has a balanced portfolio approach, that you know you can put in your threshold features, your exciters, your linears, I think that really helps you to deliver value to customers. I think it really does. It helps you to prioritize 
really well and it helps you to understand your market. It helps you to have a framework in place that you can assess the value in objectively as you can. I think it's ultimately leads to good products. Awesome. So you've written about how product managers perceive easy wins as more valuable. Sure. Let's yeah. talk a little bit about easy wins versus long-term projects and how that all fits into what we were talking about. Yeah, and I've already talked about that where we look at our low-hanging fruit fallacy. And I think it ultimately boils down, I think, to our perception of what value is as well. Okay, so there's a famous experiment done. I think it was Dan Early who did this, um, so the behavioral economist, where he asked people, he gave people a scenario where you go into a store and you're buying a shirt and you're at the till and you meet a friend of yours and your friend says to you, oh, how you doing, Eric? And they say, Eric, um, just notice you're going to buy that shirt. And that shirt is $50. And I say, but if you just go two blocks down the road, there's a EJ Maxx or a Target, and whatever. that shirt, that same shirt is half price, right? That same $50 shirt, two blocks down, it's half price. And he asked people, would you walk two blocks? And most people go, yeah, you know, it's half price. Why wouldn't you walk a couple of blocks on a couple of blocks? You know, you're saving 50%. Isn't that brilliant? And then he's, he asked a, a number of other people, he said, uh, okay, you're going into an electronic store, you're going into the Apple store, you're buying a MacBook, and it's $2,000. And your friend, you meet the same friend, and friend's there, and he says, how are you doing, Eric? How's it going? So I, just, I just noticed you're buying a MacBook Pro there. Now, two blocks down, there's a discount electronics retailer, and they're selling it for $1,975. Okay? Two blocks down, would you go? And, of course, most people went, nah, I wouldn't bother. You say, why? Because, you know, I'm spending $2,000 on a, on a MacBook Pro. I'm not, I don't care. It's only $25. But what did I realize? Because we've assessed the value relatively. And that's the way most of us do. And we do, I don't very much relative benefit and stuff like that, but it's relative to one another. But we think we do assess value relatively. So we look at it and we go, $25 is part of $2,000. It's a small amount. It's not worth two blocks. And then we just buy it here. But $25 is part of $50 short. It's half price. That's a great saving. But actually, it's the same amount of effort for the same value. It's $25 for two blocks of a walk. And yet, we can't comprehend that. So we're, we find it difficult to understand value. And I think this is where we get almost easy wins is, is, is kind of derived from that, where we see that anything in the long term, or anything that we perceive to be a little bit less value for longer you know, we, we don't see as much value in a longer term thing as we do in doing easy stuff. And we like to please people. We like to please. We like to be able to say yes. A big part of, you know, if you, if you read the Intercom book on product management, you know, all over that is ability to say no. Say no. Is it, is, they say, it's, you know, the, the greatest skill of a product manager is saying no. And, you know, that's very true. I think saying no is incredibly important. But humans, we no one like saying no. I don't like saying no to anybody. We all like to say yes. So easy wins. If somebody's going, you know, it, it's very hard. And, and, and it's almost harder to say no to something that's a small piece of work. So someone will go, oh, can you just add this small feature? In your you know, and you, you look at it and you go, oh, do you know something? It's going to take an engineer two days to do that. And, that, and we think of that. We take engineer days. Then we forget it. Oh, it's probably going to take the tester a while. And then if anything goes wrong, it's probably going to take a little bit longer. And then I've got to write up the, the, the feature use a story or a job to be done. Um, we've got to put that into collateral. And 
you know, um, we, but it's easy because the customer's going to be really happy. And we, what we, I think we, we fail to do. So as product managers, one of the core skills is empathy, right? We say that we, it's great to have empathy. And I think that's really important, but it's easy for us to have empathy with one person, that person who really wants your feature. And you go, you know, I really feel for them that they're sitting there, they're doing their job every day and they can't do it because they don't have X. And what it's much harder to empathize with is all of the other customers who aren't getting features because we're doing this low-hanging fruit for this one or two people, right? This small, tiny fix. That's even, even if it's even if it's low-hanging fruit for a lot of people, it's kind of inconsequential, right? It's a small thing that, you know, on the grand scheme of things, it doesn't cause that much difficulty for customers, right? It's, you know, and obviously we want our products to be really good, but um, are perfect. Although, going back to philosophy, I think one of the real important mantras you should take is Voltaire is perfect is the enemy of good. So I think that having our products good and then empathizing with that market, with all of those people, is much better. But I think that's much more difficult for us. It's easy to empathize with the individual. It's very hard to empathize with a collective, right? We just, we just get that. We can, we can put ourselves in the shoes of that person who's really, really struggling, but very hard for sometimes to get our heads around all the people who are going to be impacted by us doing all of those small pieces of work that end up being a large piece of work you know that would be probably much more valuable had we done one big feature so i think that's really really important to think about that you know it's jeremy bentham another philosopher utilitarianism i think it's a great concept to understand as a product manager utilitarianism is ultimately the greatest work for the greatest good okay so think about the greatest good the impact that you're going to have on the greater good and we again this is you know every every product management book tells you this but I think sometimes you know, we've all been done. I'm, I'm no, I can sit here. I'm not going to sit here and preach about it. We all do. Uh, it's just a couple of lines of code. It's just a couple of. Yeah, it's just a day's work for the guy. We've all done it. You know, we've all. Oh, I'm sure there's people nodding, but I think if we can cut out as much of it, if we can really focus on again going back to those frameworks around what is valuable, does that small piece of work? How does that help move the needle on those metrics? How does it align to those goals and release? I think that's what we've got to constantly, constantly revert back to. I think if we keep on doing that, we'll stop doing those. those. It doesn't mean that a small piece of work isn't valuable. It could be very valuable. But as long as you can determine that value objectively in a way, align that value with the goals of the release, I think then it's worth doing. But too much we do that, those small little pieces of work. So the conversation we were just having about empathy and ability to say no makes me think about characteristics of good product managers, right? So what other characteristics are there that you see in good product managers? Uh, like, you know, don't get me wrong. I think empathy is a fantastic attribute for any product manager, of course. I mean, I think the ability to, you know, focus and uh, put yourself in other people's shoes and understand problems. I do think, like, empathy is very strong, but we do have, tend to have probably a little bit of a representative heuristic, sorry, my mind went blank there. So where we believe that, you know, our problems are the same as customers or our users. But I do think having empathy helps you with that. I think empathy is very important indeed. I think if someone was to ask me, if you're hiring a product manager or you're talking to somebody and you could spot somebody who's a good product manager, I think it's curiosity. I think is really important. And I think it probably lends itself back to studying other areas or, or other 
you know, um, I talked earlier with studying history, philosophy and strategy and behavioral economics and psychology, etc. But I think having curiosity, I think the will to or the want to understand things a bit more, to ask questions, to, you know, really delve into certain areas. And because I think, and it can be difficult for a lot of people. And I think that's why, I think it's probably one of the main reasons why, you know, product managers tend to be, you know, you don't come out of college and do product management, you have to be around a while because I think curiosity probably comes a little bit with confidence because you have the confidence to ask questions, you have the confidence to, you know, go to somebody who's a, probably, a, you know, a subject matter expert or a guru in their area and say, well, well explain this to me. Sorry, you know, I don't really get this. How can you, how can I, well, what about this? And why does that? And, and then go to customers and, having the confidence as opposed to question customers and understand them and really, really get down to the root cause of the problem and a real issue that has to be solved. And so I think that curiosity is, is really important as well. Probably, and you know, it's something that I, I've seen I suppose, an issue with, with product managers, I suppose, over the years is there's a bit of ego around product managers, I believe, or product management. And it's, you know, and, you know, it might be a bit controversial, but I think having a bit of humility is really important because I think that you are ultimately in a leadership position without, we talk about it, without any authority. Okay, so you, you, most product managers don't have authority, right? You might have product owners or product managers reporting into you, but when you're trying to get your product built and between the engineers aligned and you're trying to get stakeholders aligned and understanding problems, you've got to be able to lead. And I think sometimes... I don't know who coined the phrase the CEO of the product, but I want to punch them. <laughs> I hate it. I just hate that CEO. No, I'm sorry. Whoever did make it there, you know, I'm sure they're lovely people. The mean, the connotations of it. But I heard this an awful lot. Oh, we were, you know, someone explained what a product manager is. I'm the CEO of the product. I said, God, it's just the naffest. No, you're not. No, you're not. You have no alignment with what a CEO does at all. But I think that phrase has almost developed an ego where we're very important people. We're, we're, we're the most important people you could ever come across in product. Products would not exist without product. We are amazing. I think we've got to take ourselves back a little and say that people probably who aren't product managers really aren't as enamored with the role of product management as we are. Like product managers are generally really passionate about the role. They understand, and we have a real understanding of the importance of the role. And product-led companies really understand, obviously, the importance of product managers. But other than that, people don't care if you're a product manager or not. So what you've got to do, sorry, is you've got to earn respect. You've got to get your teams aligned through leadership, through examples. And you do that by being, I think, you know, this whole servant master approach and saying like, you know, you're not, you can't tell people, you've got to lead by example. So I think in order to do that, you've got to be quite humble. You've got to accept that people really don't care about product management as much as you do. People probably don't even care about your vision and your product as much as you do. You've got to be passionate about it, but you've got to, understand and not be kind of have the ego that everyone else in the room should be as excited or stoked or interested in the vision as you are but you've got to get them bought into it right so i think that's it's probably really good characteristics i'd say first of all really i think you've got to be got to have empathy you've got to be curious and you've got to be humble i think in your approach to product management i think that's good those are good characteristics humility empathy curiosity we've talked about a lot today you know if you had to summarize this really quick into you know your words of wisdom to impart to others in product leadership what would those say three things be i think uh, words of wisdom kind of implies i'm wise 
So I'll, I'll probably do it from words of experience, probably. You know, you better. But I think for us, to lead on from, from my last point is just leave your ego at the door, being in, 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 particularly in product management. I just think you've got to lead by example. You've got to lead by understanding. You lead by listening. You know, we talked about those qualities earlier. I think you've got to be evidence-driven in your approach. So we talked about, we, you asked me about data earlier. And I say data is really, really important, but it's not the only point that you do, but evidence is very important. So you've got to ensure, and I think this is how you win over certainly senior stakeholders, but even the team is that if you've backed up what you're trying to do, your vision with evidence, you've gone out and done the legwork, you've understood the market, you've really, really analyzed properly. And you haven't just come to them and said, well, we're doing this because, oh, sure, we're told to do it. It's being prescribed. Or, you know, it seems like a good idea. You've got to come with evidence. So be evidence-driven in everything, every feature, every user story, every product vision, be evidence-driven. I think engaging, communicating, engaging with stakeholders early, I think is something that I probably don't see enough. Like, you know, we often find out about products or will contact our, for instance, our, you know, the, the people who might be training, doing training in your product or your marketing team, you know, you concentrate at the end, you get in the collateral. And probably that's a lot to do with, after they don't need to know now, they probably don't care, they're busy enough working on their stuff, they don't really need to know about what I'm doing that I'm going to be delivering in six months or three months or a year or, you know, our great product roadmap. I would say, though, there is never, if you put together a proper commun- stakeholder map, a proper communication plan with your stakeholders, and you engage them early. And, you know, certain stakeholders need to be engaged early and often, some early and infrequent. But I think engaging with your stakeholders early is really, really important. And, you know, really going back to having that contract of what you are going to deliver in your product or as a product and aligning that to goals, aligning that to your vision, your goals, and sticking to them. Because the worst thing is if, you know, you've worked in a product. And I, I was a developer once, I say, and I remember working in, you know, pivoting is good, right? You know, about type, and as a startup. But really, if we're changing our tact every week, the, the team are kind of, oh, well, do we know actually what we're building? You know, do we actually know what we're doing? And I think you get around that by aligning to the goals and being very sure of what you're doing is valuable. It's going to solve a customer need and delivering that through. So I think that, you know, that's what I'd say is in, in product leadership, you stick to those values and think you'll do okay. okay. Awesome. I think that's great. So a couple of quick questions for you as we wrap this up. You yeah. know, what's your favorite software product and why is it your favorite? My favorite software product? Well, I suppose I'll probably ask, you ask everyone this and they go, oh, the company I work for, Workday, which actually is a great product. But if I have to, if I have to think of it, of a, Software product that I use regularly is actually, it's probably for me, it comes to my mind pretty quickly. It's an online bank called Revolut. So I don't know if you're aware of Revolut, very big in Europe. And it's actually a brilliant product management kind of use case or example because they really focused initially on an MVP. So they looked at the pain points of customers, which is, I suppose, one of the things is the fees, fees around transacting using banks. Bank, so your bank account fees, your per transaction cost, and also around travel. So if you go to now, I mean, you know, Europe, and, and even in the market like Europe, where we most of us have the same currency, we've, you know, we're in the euro, but well, not most of us, some of us do. And then there's other countries that have different currency. So when you travel, and particularly because I travel to the states a lot, 
I top up my Revolut card. It's a simple bank account and it doesn't charge me for any foreign transactions and it gives me the interbank rate, which is great. You know, I remember particularly I used it when I went to my honeymoon to Japan and, you know, and obviously your honeymoon, you spend a good few quid. So I could really see the kind of the evidence of what I'd saved using Revolut. But really simple. So simple use case. They didn't go into the whole banking thing of mortgages or personal loans or anything like that. They focused on a specific customer problem. And, you know, they're really, really, they just focused on those pain points, but they had some exciters. So the initial pain point is really, for most people, would have been cost of transaction on my, on my daily current account, or you guys, I don't say checking account. And, you know, the, the, the quarterly fees, they just, everything was free. They introduced some limits, you know, the amount you can take out, et cetera, um, from an ATM. But they focused on solving that problem. And then they had some exciters. So I think the Kano model, went back to exciters, and the exciters being the foreign transaction. So free, foreign, free FX and interbank rate. That's a really nice exciter. It's not something that, you know, I wouldn't have moved just for that, but, you know, it's a nice, valuable feature. They have a really good emphasis on customer support. Now, I know they've, I've, saw, I've noticed on Twitter a couple of times where they had problems with people complaining about customer support, but every single time I've been had an issue, um, it might be a transaction that has come up or... You know, I might have topped up my card and it hasn't come through automatically, whatever. They've just been on the ball. They're really, really, so they focus massively on customer support, on first call resolution type of approach. They're very engaging. And I, one of the things I really admire, they, they had a big issue. They went down about, oh, probably earlier in the year, late last year. And it was like, you know, there was, I don't know how long it was, but a significant amount of time where their entire system went down. So you can imagine the amount of users, like, you know, they, I think they, at that time, a million users, something like that, with no access to their money. Like, that's really bad. And the CEO is a guy, Nikolai Staronsky, I think, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. He came out and he was just honest. He just said, we made a mistake. We didn't expect, and he explained entirely you know, he wasn't hiding the problem that happened. He wasn't hiding behind anything. He wasn't hiding behind the technology. Somebody did something wrong. It was his fault. And I just, I kind of admired the approach of like, you know, I'm not going to hire a PR machine to make this better. I'm going to be honest. And I mean, I'm sure they lost an awful lot of kind of goodwill and particularly an awful lot of custom, but fantastic product. Just seamless, absolutely seamless to use. Even you go online to set up your account. It takes couple of minutes like really a couple of minutes and you get a card in the post two days later it's just simple easy to use and anybody in europe i would i would actually recommend i i just to let you know Kevin, i have no association whatsoever with revolut <laughs> hopefully they might hopefully they might hear this and upgrade me to one of their premium accounts maybe but uh, probably not but a fantastic fantastic product i think it's it's really excellent so one final question three words to describe yourself Oh, well, three words to describe myself. Barely getting by, probably. <laughs> but, uh, um, I think, to go back, I, I probably one of the, the virtues I'd said that probably a good product manager has, but generally in life, I'm curious. I'm a curious person. I, you know, if you ask my mother, she probably would have said when I was a child that was the worst quality I had because I just kept on asking why, why, why. But I, it's good to look at the world in a way. And I think particularly in the current climate nowadays where we tend to, take sides quite quickly and everything's black and white and someone disagrees you we don't like their view i think being curious is a good antidote to that because i like to understand why people i disagree with particularly points of view i disagree with why they have that point of view you know i think it's good to understand 
people. So by being curious helps you to understand that. So I think that's a, it's a good quality. Uh, probably if I was say another word to describe myself, which is probably negative, which is negative really, but it is true. Is I'm quite cynical in, to an extent. So I don't, it takes me a while to drink the Kool-Aid. I just tend to be a little bit questioning of certain things, um, which it can be good quality, but in awful ways it can be sometimes. Sometimes I'm, I'm not seen to be as enthusiastic as I maybe should be, but I can be quite cynical, which is something I've worked on being a bit better about being a little bit more positive. But and lastly, I say one of the things I wore to describe me is, is I, I'm quite a proud person. And that can be seen as stubborn, and I'm not, I, I wouldn't class myself as stubborn, but I'm quite proud. I'm, I'm proud of the job I do. I'm proud of product managers and product management. I think it's an incredibly important discipline. I think it's the difference between a really good product and not. And I take a lot of pride in both my personal life, and I take a lot of pride in the work I do. I take a lot of pride in, say, in, the, in the colleagues. I take a lot of pride in the collective area, even of product management. It's something that I'd say I'm. Probably, probably to describe myself most is I'm, I'm quite a proud person. And I think probably because I mainly try to be those qualities I talked about, which is have a bit of empathy, have a bit of understanding, be ethical, things like that. So, yeah, so that's probably three words. I've probably, I could probably come up with many more, um, <laughs> but they probably wouldn't be, they'd probably be more, more probably, probably more negative. But uh, no, I, I think that, that was, those three probably sum me up a little. Well, thank you, Glenn. This was awesome. Glad you could join us today. Yeah, and thank you, Eric. And good luck with this. I think it's a brilliant thing that you're doing with this podcast. I'm an avid listener and very proud, as I say, to be asked to do it. So thank you. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people. <laughs>